Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, I use the side door. That way Lumberg can't see me. <laughs> and uh, after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Tell him uh, space out? Yeah. I just stare at my desk. But it looks like I'm working. I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch, too. Who was that paragon of productivity? Why, that was Peter in the 1999 Mike Judge comedy Office Space, explaining the unfiltered realities of his workaday life to his company's productivity consultants. I'm Pete Wright, and welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Education. What actor Ron Livingston communicates so brilliantly in that clip is actually the result of being hypnotized into a state of not caring about anything in his life. Now, that's funny in and of itself, but what allows the movie to be such a cultural touchstone is that it demonstrates what it feels like to be freed of the burden that is burnout. Now, that was 1999. Since then, workplace burnout has only gotten more severe, according to our guest today. Dr. Kate Newberg is an educational researcher, former academic affairs director, and consultant. She earned her PhD in curriculum and instruction, and her research into the state of overwhelm and burnout in our organizations is revelatory. Dr. Newberg joins Howard for a conversation on the perils of burnout and what it means for us all to make a concerted effort to craft a culture that is healing and resilient to the conditions that foster it. As always, you can find Navigating Change anywhere the finest podcasts are served. Subscribe to our mailing list at tybalinc.com, and we'll send you an email each time a new episode is released. And now, Howard Tybal talking with Kate Newberg about burnout and what we can do to heal it. So we're talking about Burnout. This is a topic that you've been researching. You've been living. You have been. You haven't been burned out, though, have you? You've been burned out. Oh yeah. One of the reasons that I began researching this topic of burnout is that I started out as an educator, and um, I worked as a New York City teaching fellow in the Bronx in New York in the middle of the recession, and so it wasn't just me that was burning out in those conditions. It was. Um, I saw colleagues burning out all over the place. And um, when we started, uh, 80% of the teachers at that school were brand new because we had lost so many. So uh, burnout is actually something that I've experienced. That I feel like I've, I've really experienced all the different textures to burnout. And it's one of the things that drove me to research it and to, um, and to work with it. Give us a little bit of your background that sort of got you into this and in, in, in exploring burnout. After being an educator for four years and I saw some of the inequities of the educational system in general and some of the ways that I felt really powerless to work against those inequities, even with all of my energy and all of my ideals and all of my and my great students, I, I, I really thought there's got to be another way of, of ordering the world. Like this is not this is not a sustainable lifestyle as a teacher in these conditions. And I wasn't the only one to think so. And we'll go over some statistics later. Uh, but what really drove me to it was I, I thought there's got to be more to this. There's got to be there's got to be a way that we really can make a difference um, in these students' lives in a sustainable way. And so I ended up leaving teaching after four years and going to the University of Denver to study educator burnout. 
Um, and the more I looked into it and the more I researched it, the more I saw that it wasn't just a pattern in education, but it was a pattern in healthcare, social work. I began to see that it was actually a nationwide thing. And so um, in grad school, one of my driving questions was, what supports or what would I have needed to still be in the classroom today? Because in a lot of ways, I really love teaching, uh, but it, it was an unsustainable way of living. So, um, so that's really what what got me started on the research part of it. And then since then, I've worked on the other side as a as a strategy lead for transformative learning and now as a consultant in working with organizations to help them um, really transform their 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 organizations, their industries, their companies, whatever it is, uh, to to create more human-centered values that really mitigates that burnout. So let, let's let's step into this because you you provided me with some amazing quotes here from Gallup uh, back in 2016. Listen to this: sixty-six percent of employees in all sectors across the country report being burned out on the job. Burnout colleagues are 63% more likely to take a sick day, 23% more likely to visit the emergency room, and 2.6 times more likely to leave the employer. When you and I met, we started our conversations about overwhelm, we were over coffee, and because I was so fascinated by this idea that you actually dove into the research around burnout in a way that really grounds this with some evidence about Something we everybody knows, somebody who's burned out. And what I said to you was overwhelm is a prevailing mood that people are finding themselves in these days. And I think we both found ourselves really interested in the nature of this conversation and whether or not overwhelm is, is in a sense, a, a preceding variable that leads to people being burned out. So these statistics here blow my mind. Uh, they they really tell us a story about these things uh, that relate to what contributes to burnout. Unfair treatment at work, lack of role clarity, poor communication, unmanageable workload. This is things people know. What are you finding as you navigate and talk to others about this? It's almost like one of those things that's below words that that they have this feeling that they live with. And then when you bring it up, they're so relieved that you have a language and an understanding around what it is that they're going through. This is something that often just people just live with. And because it is so common, I think that is a really visceral statistic that 66% of employees, that's two out of three people. So if you look around, two out of three people that you see on a daily basis are are burned out. Um, and I think that that we're really starting to to see this as the um, as the deeper crisis that it is. I love what you just said that we do need to step into what are we talking about here? Because I would imagine people have different definitions of what burnouts mean. And I love the definition that you brought to this. So why don't you share that uh, with our audience? Yeah, definitely. So I took this from Christina Maslash. If uh, Dr. Maslach, if I'm saying your name wrong and you're a listener, please <laughs> write in and tell us because um, I, I want to make sure I get this right. But um, Dr. Maslach has been researching burnout since the 80s. And she has a definition. She calls it the index of dislocation between what people are and what they have to do. 
And that's a big definition. So I think maybe we could spend a second unpacking it a little bit. To start is the, this dislocation, um, this disorienting feeling that what you are or what you feel like you signed up for versus what the duties are that you're actually performing every day at work do not align. A great example, actually, in an article I read about a professor who burned out in higher education said that the dislocation for him occurred because he was trained as a researcher. And then when he actually got into the profession, there was this laundry list of other things that he had to be doing. He was on committees. He was doing this. He was doing that. And they weren't aligned with what he thought he was, what he had been trained for and what he thought he was getting himself into. So if we, if we unpack that dislocation she doesn't even say what your role is, but what people are, which I think goes even deeper than just what role did you sign up for? But I think that actually points to something much deeper around what are your values and what is the impact you want to make on the world? And how do you want to use your strengths in a way that make the world a better place or create the type of change you want to see? When I talk to people who start a new job, they have a certain expectation about what the job is. And then they find out what the real job is. Three months later, they, they, they really – because, you know, what you read in a job description is not the job. Never was, never is. Uh, and people know this, but they come in with a certain kind of optimism that it's aligned with their values. Unless they're the kind of person that's just looking to do a job to get a paycheck, now, now see that, that's interesting because if we broke out for some people, why are you here? Not everybody's in their job because they care about that particular work. They, they're there because they have an obligation, right? We have to work. Sometimes people are in really important roles, but they're not, they don't really care deeply about the work. I think that that's rare, but in that, in those cases, I, I think they're more susceptible to being burned out. And I also think they have a responsibility, though, to recognize that it's not the organization that's doing it to them. This is where I think is a, I have a little bit of a pushback on just looking at it purely from the perspective of the burned out person, that they've got a role to play in this, too. On average, Americans spend 9.5 hours a day at work. Something that is also in the literature is that burnout is becoming more and more of a thing as years go by. And I think people are reporting higher and higher levels of dissatisfaction. This number, 66%, the one that we talked about, um, if you go back and look at the literature, it's been on the rise for decades now. And I think something that's happening is that people are just, they're no longer satisfied. They're, they're coming to find that if they're spending 9.5 hours a day at work, which is, um, if you break it down, it's something like 43% of your waking hours in a week. Um, and you're not using that time um, to do something that's really meaningful to you. It's not enough to go for a run after work or spend an hour with the kids on weekends. Um, it's not fulfilling to them. And the sheer amount of time that they're spending doing these things begins to weigh on them uh, because it's because it's not touching something deeper within them that they're really trying um, that they're really trying to bring out into the world. On one hand, you have a personal responsibility to define what type of impact you do want to make in the world and what is right for you. Um, but then the other part of it is that these statistics, they're too consistent to be an accident, which led me to realize that a lot of what burnout is, is systemic and that it's being generated by the systems that are in place. 
I love that you you brought that back to systemic because if it is 60%, 66%, and you and I both agreed that this is not just that individuals are having feelings about their jobs, that something's going in, happening in our culture, in our organizations that's contributing to this. And I think that that is an important point that leaders have a responsibility to step back and not do what they typically do is look at their people if you're not happy – do something else. We can find somebody else who is, uh, but that they have a role to play in saying, what are we doing here or not doing here that's contributing to people being burned out? What are some of the things that you have discovered that are happening in organizations that are systemically contributing to burnout? I kind of want to look at the the other side of things. And I kind of want to look at what organizations are doing that actually are finding that they're getting um, higher retention rates among employees and higher employee satisfaction. So why do we care about burnout? In addition to it just being kind of an, a dehumanizing uh, thing that's happening uh, among among all our among 66% of our employees, it also costs a lot of money. Another Gallup report that's re- called Re-Engineering Performance Management uh, estimates that the cost of poor management and lost productivity from employees in the U.S. who are not engaged or, or who are actively disengaged to be between $960 billion and $1.2 trillion per year. These are figures that, that most people are either ignoring or they just don't know how to engage in that. Organizations don't raise the performance management, you know, how they engage their employees to improve as a recognition of how this is impacting them from a bottom line standpoint. And if we can do a better job of making that clear, then they can see that it's in their interest to do this. It's not just because you care about your employees. For the business, this is a critical thing. And unfortunately, and I'll say unfortunately because I think it would be it should be enough that we want to take care of our employees as a reason to like pursue this. But for many organizations, if they don't see it contributing to the bottom line, they're not going to put energy around it. So you asked me a question earlier, which was you know, what are you actually seeing that's contributing to burnout? And something I want to talk about are the organizations that actually do tend to their employees. Um, I want to say they tend to their employees' humanity, and they actually are actively working to create positive and trust-centered cultures. A note, a side note on that, is that most companies are outcomes-oriented, there's a really interesting book that talks about this. So if, you're re- if your listeners are interested in it, it's called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Leloux. And he talks about how uh, most organizations, most companies, most businesses are outcomes oriented, which means they um, it's, it's really Machiavellian, Machiavellian, actually, because they're they're just trying to get to that bottom line. And it doesn't matter to them who they chew up and spit out to get there. But actually, if you look at it, Qualities like selfishness or rampant and toxic competition are actually some of the most inefficient qualities you can have in a collective. The whole idea around a collective is that you're trying to accomplish a goal that you cannot accomplish on your own. Otherwise, you would just do it on your own. So you form a collective because whatever it is you're trying to accomplish is much bigger than any one person can do. So that's the whole point of having a collective. So if 
then that collective suddenly is infighting or there's all this energy being spent on um, competition or people not communicating well or people withholding information to try to get ahead, then suddenly all this information and all this energy is being spent within the kind of the cogs and the wheels of the company instead of being pushed outward toward the outcomes they actually want to achieve. The listeners here, they hear the word companies, they hear business, and they don't see themselves as a business. They're not. Outcomes-oriented is a really interesting conversation in higher ed today and also K through 12. What does it mean to be outcome-focused? What are the outcomes we're looking to produce? One example is retention. Right. So and, and this is a good example to this is that we will likely, if we do a better job of helping people around burnout, reduce retention. Uh, but university and college outcomes are about fundamentally sustaining the practices that they have and doing it better than they did before, right? Having better programs. There's a different conversation around transformation, but fundamentally institutions focus is around preservation and preservation of the institution of the brand you know hampshire college there was a recent article about ken burns being interviewed about why it matters to him that that hampshire does not go out of business and because it's going to produce the kind of person that he is and the kind of people that come out of that environment so there's a strong focus on how are we going to preserve these institutions going to the future? And now they're trying to be outcome focused because they can't keep raising tuition the way they had. They, the expenses are continuing to arise. And some of the stress people are feeling is that they're trying to transition higher education to be more outcome focused as opposed to doing this for the mission of the organization. So I'm curious, as you as you think about this burnout question in an environment that is, in that is really intending to move to be more outcome focused, whether or not that's only going to increase the, the mood and the burnout that people are having. Because I think that is happening. I'm just talking to someone today who he is feeling the pressure from his boss to be able to like execute on behalf of the institution and he's not quite sure how he's going to make that happen. I think one of my concerns is how are we going to deal with the fact that we're moving to your point around outcomes? We're moving in that direction because higher education has not been historically focused on those outcome measures. It's not a either or conversation. And that's that's a conversation I've had a lot with um, in education, especially um, around transformative types of learning or 21st century learning, people say, well, we can't do that because we need to get test scores. And so in, in K-12 education, the outcomes are test scores. And they see it as an either or. But what's actually coming out in the literature is that institutions, organizations, companies, businesses, whatever you want to call yourself, there is no antithetical relationship between being values-oriented and being productive. And in fact, what the literature is showing is that if you can start to remove some of those barriers to productivity, if you can start to actually um, create a values-oriented institution where people are working together, where there's clear communication, where there's transparency and expectations, that productivity actually goes up yes. because people trust each other and they're putting their energy into the organization instead of into protecting themselves. People aspire what you just said all the time. There's a separate conversation, which is how are they going to do it? Be, having effective communication between two people 
around getting work done in itself is difficult. So there's a whole domain of helping people be more effective in those areas around productivity. I think one of my questions as I hear you and think and read some of the stuff that you've written is how do we get people to recognize this as a concern that they want to really investigate you know, as opposed to keeping their heads down and just sort of following what is expected of them to get their work done. Somehow we have to get leaders to step back and go, this is a concern that we have and there are strategies that we can, we, that we can put in place. So talk a little bit about what, for, for, for the listeners who are interested in engaging this, how do you open conversations with others around this? And what are some strategies to deal with this systemic issue that you had talked about? Great question. There's two points I want to make about that. The first is that I'm really glad you mentioned leadership because it's been shown that an institution, organization, company, it cannot rise above the level of consciousness of its leaders. So if a leader is 100% bought into the idea that competition makes better products, then that company will not rise above that that level of philosophy. Um, so it is extremely important for leaders to begin to think about how they want to embrace these types of concepts if they come to the conclusion that this that attrition or burnout or overwhelm, how, however they want to think about it, it's hurting their bottom line, it's hurting their employees, it's hurting their company, it's hurting their institution. So it's really important for leaders to come around to this. And for your listeners in academia, I think what's really important to point out is that, especially in America, there isn't a lot of research out there on, on mental health and wellness in academia. And I think part of that is because it's such a mind-oriented institution. As someone who's come through it, as someone who's taught classes in, in academia, someone who's been immersed in academia, you can see that it's this whole a discussion of heart or a discussion of soul or a discussion of inner purpose. These things that cannot be empirically measured are in a lot of ways, very avant-garde and a little bit suspect in the, in, the, in the university setting. And while other universities, I know Canada and the UK and Australia have started to have begun to look into this question of wellness and mental health within their, um, within their professors and within their administration, within everyone who's running it, um, in America, it's still kind of a hard sell. I know that a number of universities who are putting health and wellness front and center. But we also have to look really honestly whether we're paying lip service to this. To have a tagline around wellness is different from getting people engaged in conversations. And these are complex organizations. So these are not going to change overnight. You know, I think what people want to see is that the institution is making an effort. And, and then they can look at themselves and then say, all right, what do I have to put into the conversation? It seems to me that's going to be – that's an important shift that has to happen is the individual has to see that the institution cares enough. I mean leadership cares enough that they're not doing well. I've, I've been recently saying to people, the cavalry isn't coming. People don't like to hear that, but they're actually – you know, 10 years ago, 
everyone was hoping for more resources. Like maybe the solution is if we can just get more resources and the sort of this, this sense of, of, of uh, loss that there are free, fewer and fewer, fewer resources, the more and more they have to actually take on more work. Today, I think we're discovering that those resources are not coming. And I think there's a place where more people creates more complexity. That what we have to learn how to do and be is better than what we have. And and I don't, you know, for someone that works in a place where they're working twice as much than they ever have, you know, that sounds like a management excuse. But there is a place where I think we have to find a way to meet each other both ways and minimally just open the conversation. So what would you say to an academic leader, either on the administrative or academic side, that would be an effective way to open a conversation that would then lead to sort of building some energy around exploring this? What are some things they can do actively now to move this conversation forward? I think the first and most powerful thing that they can do is accept that their employees, that their professors, that the people who work for them are struggling not because they're not suited to the position or they just don't have enough resilience or they should, you know, they should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I think they need to acknowledge that there's something within their system that is generating these outcomes. Can you give us some examples of systemic things that you have seen or from talking to others that represent the contributors to this burnout? Going back to that uh, definition of burnout, that there's a dislocation between who these people are and what it is that they're doing. One of the coolest things that came out of this um, Gallup poll were that they really talked about these five things that contribute to burnout. So we'll go over those one more time. Unfair treatment at work, lack of role clarity, poor communication, unmanageable workload, and unreasonable time pressure. So what's interesting about that is that um, something that I like to call systemic alignment. Systemic alignment is essentially what I call the curriculum of an organization. And it asks three main questions. It says, what is it that we want to accomplish? How are we going to measure it? And then what structures and procedures do we need to have in place to drive toward those goals that we want to accomplish? And just putting that out there, starting to orient around those questions will clear up a lot of the insecurity and the obscurity around what is it that I really actually am prioritizing in my job. A lot of what I see is we say we want one thing and then we're measuring another. Or another part of it is um, something I've, I worked with an organization recently to do systemic alignment. And the first thing I did was say, what are your goals? Because when I read through their documents, they claimed to have six goals, but they actually had over 20 goals. And if you have over 20 goals, you might as well have zero. A big part of it is, is being able to say yes to some really specific things that you want to accomplish as an organization or an institution. And um, I've seen strategic plans that have up to 60 bullet points in them. We're running around trying to measure all of these things and 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 accomplish all these things. Meanwhile, it's our our energy is totally dispersed, right? Whereas if we had six goals, three goals, something that we could drive towards, something to act as a north star, yeah. then suddenly decision making is easier, resource allocation is easier, 
professional development and learning is easier because really what you have to do is ask the question, does this drive toward this specific, transparent and clarified goal that we set? Yes or no? If it's yes, we go for it. If it's no, we don't. I, I've, I've hooked into just in listening to you the last five minutes, just what, how important this is and that we can navigate it. You know, the example that you gave about what are our goals, how are we going to measure it and, and really getting people to see how they tie into where the organization's going. This is something that's a part of a lot of the work that we're doing with education leaders. And it reinforces for me that that's not just about the bottom line, it's a way to take care of people. So this is an this is an excellent reminder to people out there that the benefit of exploring having an effective organization or having good team building, it's actually going to contribute to people feeling more connected to what they do. If someone wants to invest more learning into this or want to sort of in, uh, even engage with you, uh, learn a little bit more about this, where would you suggest that they go? Yes, there's a couple books that have really influenced me that I absolutely love that help out with with this with these types of bigger questions. And um, the first one I, I already mentioned, it's called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Leloux. And there's a couple others that I really think are um, are good context for this. One of them is called Drive. And it's a surprising, it's, it's by Daniel Pink and it's called Drive. The surprising truth about what motivates us. If you're looking to inspire intrinsic motivation in your employees, which is very much linked to retention and, and satisfaction, that's a great one. And then one other book that has really influenced me, it's called Switch. And it's by Dan Heath and Chip Heath. And that talks about larger scale transformation. Those three are really, really good places to start. And you've written an article, right? We're going to post your article. What's your article about? Um, my most recent article was published in the Vale Daily. Shout out to the Vale Daily. In uh, I live in Avon, Colorado, and it was and it's about um, just kind of a, a large scale overview, kind of what we talked about today. But first of all, talking about the problem of burnout and employee attrition, and then going over some of the qualities of companies that that actually are able to retain employees and keep high employee satisfaction. We're going to do another one of these because I, I know there will be people out there listening to this that will want to investigate this and step into this. And I think that, that you know, maybe the next time we can get into some more specifics about what are the things people can specifically do uh, to move this forward or even uh, get people, get somebody on here who's dealing with these issues and we do a, a live kind of like intervention <laughs> with them. I think the reason that burnout has become such a big thing is that we've started listening to ourselves and we've started listening to the deeper movements of our of our desires and our and our hearts and thought about um, more about fulfillment in terms of giving back and what can I give and how can I use my strengths in service of the whole in service of humanity in service of my community. And I think we're just, it's just not cutting it anymore to go to work and um, do your job, go home and after 30 years retire. I think, I think this is a really hopeful sign actually that there's something, some larger movement in our population that's saying, I want to give back. I want to give more and I want to do it on the job. And I want to do it in this context where if I'm going to spend nine and a half hours a day here, 
I want it to be meaningful. And so I think that's actually, even though burnout feels like it's a crisis, I actually think it's a really hopeful sign. I, I'm more inspired by that and, and feel like this is something that we need. Actually, what you just said, that there's a greater self-awareness. And that also provoked me to realize that that's also revealing the dislocation. It's been dislocated, but now that we're saying this is more important to us, we're seeing it more clearly. So now, now hopefully people will be more ready because they'll, they'll have language to be able to engage in this. So we will do this again. Nice job. And thank you for being on the program. And uh, please read what some of the materials that Kate has submitted on the page. And we will continue and do this again. 